Welcome to episode 802 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Radio team, welcome along to episode 802 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom, Bevan James. Oh, you're on the beach in Kaiteri. I am. It's day three of the holiday, 21st of December. I'm still I'm still working. You're still working. Still doing the hard yards. I'm still keeping the economy going. Keeping the podcast rolling. Oh, that's right. So uh, let's get into it. I Am Talk is proudly brought to you by our fantastic patrons. You go first. Joel Sensei Bell. We've got Robert Cuddles Evans and Caleb BB Guest, and that stands for the Bell Boy. Okay, this week's show. Well, well, basically, we're now in our holiday break, but we are going to keep putting shows out. And we've got some really good interviews for the over period of time. Uh, John's will want to put us a swim set I'm in. I'm still swimming today. Yep, so he's making sure he's putting the swim set in. Uh, yeah. So, open water swim set. We are. So today, I'm Thomas. Well, wait, 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 we're not there yet. Okay. And, then we, and then we have an interview, an interview of a guy called Paul Wood, and I'll talk about that in a second. But okay, your swim set. Swim set today, swim. We can head down to Little Kaiteri Beach. They've got a nice line of swim boys along there, perfectly placed for us to do uh, workouts in. And it's supposed to be a no-boat zone, and I get extremely annoyed when the, the some, a few of the locals think that the rules don't apply for them and they drive their boat into the beach mm. very slowly. But it's like, bugger off, you've got all this other space. Really. Where do they meant to drive their boats? Over to the other beach and the ramp. There's a jet. There's a, a water skiing lane and, and the boating lane, but they're just they think they own the place. Just because they own a house there, they think they can do what they want. Mm-hmm. Pretty annoying. Anyhow, today's open water swim set is a 500 meter warm up, and then we're going to do six by 200 meters around a couple of buoys. Uh, to, or boys? Or we, should we say boys or buoys? Boys. We say boys, don't we? Yeah. I think buoys, buoys. For, for Americans. Yep. Uh, so six times 200 meter lap. This is number one. We're going to do very hard to the first boy because little Tommy's trying to get ready for short distance racing and then uh, and then we'll take it easy for the rest of the lap. Uh, rep number two will be at a moderately hard intensity and then the third lap will be steady to the first boy, hard across the back and then steady back in. So quite a bit of pace variation and then repeat that through again and then we'll finish off with a 500 steady. So that's going to be, what's that, about 2.2 k's roughly uh, in the fresh sea of Little Kaiteri and hopefully there's no jellyfish like last time. Oh yeah, that's not good. Mm. It was just one, one random time. Never see jellyfish, but just when we went up in October, there was some jellyfish. No, we didn't, but there was a lot of jellyfish. Did you get something in it? We did, and it was uh, it was not. It was got aborted pretty quickly. There was tears all around. Yeah, from children. Oh <laughs> yeah, to make sure you put that in. Yeah. <laughs> so that's today's swim set, and it's four days till Christmas. So the the build up is happening. Okay, build up to Turkey Day. Oh, I, oh, I said at the end of the show. Okay, uh, so let's get straight into our interview. So we've got an interview with a guy called Dr. Paul Wood. Now, I think we we did an interview. I did. I've done two interviews with Paul on my podcast. So the interviews we're doing over the series are some of the interviews I had on my podcast throughout the last twelve months. Now, Paul Wood's brought out a book called Mental Fitness, and basically what he's done is he's basically thought, you know, if we think about physical fitness as you know the tools you use to create a better body, well, he's now looked at the tools that you need to develop your mental fitness, and he's he's a real kind of science based guy and research based guy uh, he's pretty passionate as you're going to see and they're pretty knowledgeable so we'll put the interview with Paul Wood up on right now here he is here's Dr. Paul Wood from the book Mental Fitness 
Right, our team, I'm pretty excited to have on the show. He's been on the show before and he's back again, Dr. Paul Wood. And he's got a new book out called Mental Fitness, Build Your Mind for Strength and Resilience Every Day. Welcome to the show, Paul. How are you? Oh, excellent. Equally excited to be here, Bevan. Oh, he says all the right things. Hey, um, let's start with the inspiration. Um, you know, you're, this is your second book. Uh, you know, you, your first book was very powerful. Uh, coming back to writing the second book, what was inspired you to actually kind of go, you know what, I want to do this book? Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I mean, you know, the first book was mainly about my story of change and growth, you know, from in prison, delinquent, doctor of psychology. And it was it was a story that I wanted to tell because I thought it would add value for other people. Yep. And it, it definitely has. I get that feedback all the time. But when you're telling your own story, like it's not a book you feel proud about because it's your own story. Yep. Whereas this one, this is about how I've invested my time and energy as a professional in this area, the knowledge I've accumulated and being able to really sort of impart and uh, provide that knowledge to other people. So yeah. it's quite a different one. But, but if you want to talk origin stories, we love a good origin story, <laughs> eh? Yeah. Like a startup in someone's garage yeah. and yeah. that type of Luke stuff. Skywalker, you know? Mate, let me give you the origin story. And this is actually a really relevant one for you because the origin story really sort of starts or a good marker for it is actually in Burnham, down in Canterbury, where you're based. And uh, I was at the fifth anniversary for the Army Leadership Centre down there at, at, at the Army Base in Burnham. And as part of the celebration dinner, I was sitting at the table with a number of other people, you know, and my primary contact there was a guy who was, was instrumental in the Army Leadership stuff, and that's uh, Captain Steve-O, Captain Paul Stevens, who's, who's been a fantastic contributor in the book and otherwise. Uh, but also there were some other Defence Force facilitators there, and uh, Ainsley Cheeseman, and, and a guy, Shannon, Shannon um, Stollard. And what was interesting is we were having a conversation around how it can be really hard to get males to really buy into some of the stuff that's actually incredibly helpful for all of us. Yeah. And, and I relate to this, I understand this, because naturally I'm quite a knuckle-dragger myself. Yeah. And that means that you know, some of my natural tendencies is to look at things like resilience, to look at things like mental toughness and stress and to kind of have these unhealthy ideas that, oh, well, you should just be able to handle that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, which is a bit of a traditional Kiwi thing as well, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. And you can imagine, you know, in places like the Defence Force and the Army that attract, you know, people who are perhaps a, a bit harder in their attitudes than the general population, you have to kind of be to make it through basic training, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then to orientate to those areas. It can be even harder to tap into those people. And uh, Shannon actually said, oh, well, look, if we just communicated that this stuff was more like fitness, and if we just called this mental fitness, and we, we let people think of their stressful situations as mental workouts, then we would be able to do so much better in terms of getting people to buy into this. And for me, that was when I was in the process of writing my first book. So it was a seed that kind of was planted by Shannon there, and then sort of really started to come to fruition later on. And the first thing that really sort of changed my perspective around this too is that prior to that conversation, you know, I had referred to the workshops I was doing as emotional fitness. But what I would find is in a lot of the organizations I worked in where it was opt-in programs that staff could sign up for, yeah. I would just about get no men on those. Oh, really? That word emotion for a lot of men is just like, whoa, already out of the comfort zone just hearing that word. 
But after that conversation with Jenna, I, you know, it wasn't that long after that that I started uh, to reposition the workshops as mental fitness. And we noticed, sure enough, an increase in the number of men who were opting on to these. Wow, fascinating. So just that simple change in language, right? But I mean, I, I suppose the, the real driver for the book is that this stuff has radically transformed my life. You know, like my background's in psychology, part of my doctorate, that sort of stuff involved looking at things like the ability to cope with stress and pressure, that sort of stuff. So I studied all of this. But I've got real skin in the game because I've experienced the benefit myself in my own life of just having a more realistic understanding of how all this stuff works and having some of those tools that can advance me. In terms of just having that, that mental and emotional capacity to show up as the person I'd want my reputation to reflect yeah. when I'm in challenging circumstances and just have a bit more of a, str a spring in my step on a day-to-day -day basis. This is one of the things I think is really comparable with physical fitness, eh? Like, you know this yourself, right? If you're physically fit, the benefits aren't something you experience only when you're exercising. On a moment-by-moment -moment basis in your life, on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis, you just feel better about the world. Yeah. You feel better about yourself. You have more of a spring in your step. You walk around feeling more empowered in the world, eh? Yeah, totally, like you're yeah. in charge of your own destiny. Yeah. And it's the same with this stuff. It's not just about building the skills to be able to bounce back and recover when times are hard or to cope effectively under pressure. It's just that having more fuel in your tank, having more of a bounce in your step as well. Yeah, yeah I totally hear what you're saying because I, I, one thing I always promote when I'm all about fitness is your life is better when you have exercise in it. You know, and, and it's not just that you're healthier and fitter. There's just there's so, you know, there's just an unlimited supply of benefits that come to that experience of having that in your life. And and I do agree because um, I, I like to think that I'm good at all this mental kind of stuff. And there's there's this kind of underlying foundation that sits, isn't there? That you kind of just know within yourself. And to me, it's, it gives you trust. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, to me, it's like, I know I can move forward in the world and tomorrow and I'm going to be okay. See, I love this, right? Because actually, like in sports psychology, when you talk about mental toughness, which is the ability to perform under pressure, a key component of that is confidence. But when they're talking about confidence then, they're not talking about hubris. They're mm. not talking about walking around thinking you're yeah. invincible and you always succeed. They're talking about what you're referring to as trust. You trust that you'll be okay. You're yeah. confident that you'll make it through even though it'll be hard. Yeah, yeah. You've been here before. You know that even though this is a bit scary, even though this will be tough, that you'll be okay. Yeah, you'll make yeah. it through. And yeah. it's that, that trust, as you call it, or the confidence, if you like, which is a crucial component of it, right? Mm. It's mm. one of those ideas I love that when you talk about mental toughness and sports or in otherwise – and I want to get into this a little bit more as well, the distinction between mental toughness and resilience. But that a key component of it is what's your previous benchmark for misery and suffering? Mm. You know, the greater the misery and suffering you've experienced in the past, the easier it is to manage whatever the challenge is now. Yeah. And, you know, this is a real big one, right? Because misery and suffering, you know, and that benchmark is different for different people. Like if you haven't done any running before, you know, and you were starting out like that 5K, that is a massive achievement, right? And that runner's program you set up, yeah. that 5K, that's awesome. Whereas if you've done a bit more, then, you know, the misery and the suffering of the 5K is more manageable and then you start bumping it up.
But, you know, that's an important idea is that that experience actually gives you confidence going forward that you'll be okay. Mm. Um, and just based on that, I do want to get into that sort of uh, mental toughness, resilience distinction. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's okay. into it. yeah. yeah. Um, generally, what you hear people talk about is you hear people talk about resilience. Resilience is the popular sort of word that's used in, in life in general. Whereas resilience really is primarily about bounce. So it's about that ability, once you've experienced stress and pressure, to bounce back to a previous level of functioning or to an even higher level of functioning and ability to bounce and recover going forward. Yeah. Because that's how you get more resilience is from experiencing stress and pressure and recovering from it, right? Whereas actually the whole piece, which is about when the heat is on, when the pressure is on, can you remain effective? Can you do what you need to do to be successful? Whatever that means in the context you're in. That actually is really more what's conceptualized as mental toughness. Okay. And traditionally, mental toughness has really been the domain of sports psychology and the defense force. Because both of those are areas where there are really high stress uh, situations that you can predict you encounter and the stakes are very high in terms of your ability to perform in those environments. You know, win or lose, yeah. live or die, yeah, yeah. high stakes. Yeah. Uh, whereas again, you know, like in the workplace, in the general life, it's more around this bounce, resilience, but it's missing this whole other piece. And what's a cool idea here is like, you know, some of the stuff I talk about in my book is the stuff that I got from, you know, having the, the privilege of working with the Defence Force with the SAS, that type of stuff. And you might go, well, look, I'm not in the SAS. I'm not going to have to worry about a gun battle. But what people fail to realize is that your physiological response to stress will actually be the same in your day-to-day -day stressful situations. And the same tools work there. Like when I think of what are the, what's the most consistent stress experience I have where I actually practice the skills that I learned via that exposure to the special forces psychologists and other defense force psychologists, it's every morning when I'm experiencing non-compliance from my six-year-old and my four-year-old when it comes to getting their shoes on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's when I'm experiencing the stress and I'm going, right, what are my options here? I can just go with my habitual response, which is to get impatient and to start, you know, like getting flustered and the rest of it. Rational. Or what I can, yeah, right. <laughs> or what I can do is I can go, well, this is exactly the type of situation where I need to be able to employ these tools so I can show up as that better version of myself who's more effective. So my key point here is what we can learn from sports psychology and the defense force doesn't require us to be in those high stakes settings. Mm. They work equally well in our lives. And one of the reasons the defense force was so generous in terms of giving me access was because, you know, the defense force psychologists and other personnel who I interacted with they all want this stuff out there. It doesn't compromise the, the special forces or the army operationally. It's just great knowledge that they actually want shared with the general public to help everyone's lives. They mm. want it out there and they saw this as a good vehicle for that. That's why I got that access. And so, so really what you're saying is the difference between resilience is that kind of ability to bounce back from challenging situations and that mental toughness is, or that mental fitness is in the moment, knowing how to apply in the best way possible. Yeah, just being able to cope with that. I mean, this is the way I think of it. And again, 
Mate, you are the expert. So I'm about to get right out of my lane into your lane here and talk about my layperson's understanding of physical fitness. Mm -hmm. So when I think of physical fitness, I think of your capacity to cope with physical demands, with physiological stress and pressure. The fitter you are, the greater your capacity to cope before you get fatigued. And then the quicker your ability to recover afterwards. And for me, mental toughness is that ability to cope in the heat of the moment. And then resilience is that recovery piece. Mm. So I did the Queenstown Marathon last year, and that required a lot of, a lot of running to train for that. Yeah. And that massively increased my ability to recover. Eh? That's the big thing I noticed there, yeah. is that when I'm doing aerobic exercise, that I recover a lot quicker. Or my sport's judo, which is a, a speed and power sport. Yeah. And what I've noticed as a result of my investment last year in the marathon training, I recover a lot quicker between fights, mm. between bouts. Yeah. But there's still this whole other piece, which is when you're hitting the wall, when you're feeling absolutely miserable or when you're in the high intensity environment of saying judo, can I remain effective then? And that's that mental toughness piece, eh? Mm. So, so in the book, you know, you, you, you kind of bring up, you kind of talk a lot about stress and you talk about de-stress and new stress and, um, and you, 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 and I've actually kind of, I, I talked a lot about your book in my last episode. So I actually broke down awesome. that area quite a lot and because I thought it was really valuable. And then, so I won't go into too much detail into that because, you know, I, I gave a lot of it to the and the people, but oh. then you start to go into, um, the, the Seligman's kind of thing of PERMA. And, and can you talk about that? Because I think that's really powerful. And I think um, it's a really good thing, a good framework to people to think about, you know, in dealing with the stresses of our life. Yeah, nice. Uh, look, so basically the PERMA model or the PERMA H model yeah. is, is the one I use in there is, is a model that comes from research into the psychology of flourishing yeah. and This is an interesting idea because often when we think of psychology, we think of the traditional deficiency-focused approach to psychology. You know, Bevan, tell me about your problems and let me get you back to a normal state of misery and suffering, okay? (laughs) Literally, that's what Freud said psychology was about, to get you back to a normal state of misery and suffering, right? So it'd be that deficiency focus. There's a problem, there's an issue. Whereas the whole flourishing direction is what's called positive psychology, where it goes hey, let's try and have the best lives possible. And how can we make that happen? How can we truly flourish? And and the real originator of that was Professor Martin Seligman, Dr. Martin Seligman. And he came up with this model, which taps into the different areas of our lives that we must be leveraging in order to really flourish. And it's captured by the PERMA acronym. And I say PERMA H, because subsequent to him coming up with this model, We've just really recognized how important our, our fundamental health is yeah. when it comes to our flourishing. So the H part, the health component, that really captures, you know, sleep. Am I getting the right amount and quality of sleep? Is my diet reasonable so my body can work effectively? And of course, my man, for you and your listeners, am I getting enough exercise? Yeah. Am I moving enough? And if any of those things are out of whack, you know, all the positive thinking in the world and the rest of it is kind of building on sand. Yeah. But those things in themselves, those just give us the foundation. There's this whole other, you know, component to our lives that can really unlock our potential and, and give us the best, most meaningful life possible. And that's captured by the PERMA acronym. 
And the P stands for positive emotion. And these are the things that actually just give us a pleasant emotional experience in life. And this is a really important one for us to be conscious and deliberate about because our brain is wired to naturally orientate towards unpleasant emotions, to, to be more prone to experience those, to be more impacted by those. And as, as I talk about in the book, there are important evolutionary reasons for that, right? That helped keep our ancestors alive. If they assumed the worst in the face of uncertainty and felt the unpleasant emotions that made them pay more attention and be more focused, they were less likely to be eaten. They were less likely to die or have their children. get It was really important survival stuff. And on that basis, our brain is, has these natural tendencies towards focusing more on that negative stuff. And to you know, use an example that most of your listeners will be able to relate to, if any of you have ever experienced a performance review in the workplace, you know, you've probably had this experience. You've had these before in your previous incarnations, eh, Bevan? Yeah, yeah. You know, well, even, even like if the manager rings you. Right. Even the manager you rings you. You have a random call right from in. the manager, hey, you know? I, I want to catch up. I want to have a chat with yeah. you. The uncertainty there, right, yeah, prompts yeah. something's emotion. But even this tendency to focus more on and be impacted more by the negative, you know, the performance review example is this. You catch up for a performance review. The vast majority of things mentioned are really positive. You're doing a great job. But there are one or two things you could be doing better or differently. What do you walk away remembering and focused yeah. on, right? Yeah. Yeah. That stuff's stickier for the brain. So what we know is we need to be quite conscious and deliberate about countering those natural tendencies by engaging in the activities that, that, that fill the cup, eh? that give us some positive emotions that, that make us feel good. And that's different things for different people. For some people, mate, that's patting the dog. Yeah. You know, for other people, you know, that's that's looking out the window or getting into nature or all these different things. But that's what the P is about. It's about how can I cultivate more deliberate, positive... I, I, and this morning, I was driving, driving home from the gym. Exercise is a good thing for me, but my favorite song came on and I was I cranked it up in the car and I'm singing away and I was the total dickhead in the car singing it. And, you know, but hey, it was I loved it. You know, there's just that when music takes you to that oh, place. I so relate to that. And I'll tell you this right now, mate, you being the total dickhead in the car, as you say, <laughs> anyone driving the other way who saw you experienced positive emotion as a result of mm. seeing you doing that in the car. Mm. Guarantee it. Yeah. Music's a great one. You know, and I often talk about this. I was talking about this earlier today in a workshop around this. And, and, you know, that is the importance of deliberately using music as a vehicle to positively impact our emotional state. Yeah, yeah. You know, some of us already do that, but all of us have music that would have that benefit for us. It's about, in a deliberate and disciplined way, starting to go, I'm going to build that into my day. Well, well I actually use oh, it as a training tool. So, like, like oh, I teach classes where you use music, but if I'm doing a hard run you know, like chop suey by ability system of the down, nothing will pull me through a hard run like that song. You know, like there's, yeah. that, that's a, using the emotion of the music to take me to a place where maybe I couldn't get to by myself. Like it's, it's a powerful tool. Yeah, awesome. You know, one of the letters we'll talk about in a tick is, is the R in Perma, which is relationships. But, you know, you just made me think of this because at the moment, like what I was listening to just before jumping on with you, my current guilty listening pleasure is Islands in the Stream. You know, oh, the duet was Dolly Parton and Kenny uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, and And I'll tell you what, like I listen to this and I literally feel a greater sense of gratitude and love for my wife when I listen to it yeah. because her and I, we're in this together. 
this can't be wrong, you know, all of this, the lyrics from it, it literally mm-hmm. makes me feel a sense of really positive emotion, yeah. respect of gratitude for having my wife in my life and how much I love her. Yeah. So again, you know, this stuff is important. It's important that we engage with it deliberately. Check this out, right? To carry on the analogy with physical fitness, yeah. you don't have to do deliberate exercise to have a level of physical fitness. The act of getting out of your bed in the morning, reaching for a cup, putting on your shoelaces, every time you move, you're creating a certain base level of physicality in your body, of physical fitness. But if you want to be anywhere near your potential, you need to be a bit more structured and deliberate about it, right? And it's the same with this. You're going to encounter things in your life that will give you positive emotion. It will help fill the tank and help prepare you to be able to counter any of those sort of negative tendencies. But unless you're more deliberate and conscious about it, you're not going to be anywhere near your potential. You're not going to be getting anywhere near the benefits you could be. Yeah. So that's the P, which is around the, the positivity. And uh, the E is about engagement. Now, this is an interesting concept because I used a workplace example before. And often people, if they've heard of the term engagement, they think of workplace assessments to see if they're happy at work and that. But what we really focus on the book is how regularly you get into a state of flow. And flow is defined as the psychological state where you lose track of time, Mm. where you're operating at a really high level of productivity, where you're really enjoying what you do as you're doing it. You're fully present and focused on the activity that you're undertaking. You know, you're not thinking about later on or earlier on. You're just in the moment. In sports, you know, traditionally it was always called being in the zone. Yeah. The psycho- psychology, uh, psychological term is, is flow, is being in a flow state. And, and one of the things that we do in the book that I love there, and I've just noticed that I'm starting to get in the habit of referring to it as we. One of the things that I did in the book <laughs> is that, not a royal, I shouldn't be referring to myself as well. <laughs> but anyway, is, is actually help people figure out what are the types of activities that are most likely to get me into flow? Because, you know, there are certain ingredients which are true for all of us. For example, does it have the appropriate level of challenge for you where it's not too easy, but it's hard enough to be right on the sort of borderline of your skill set? in your capacity. And on that basis, it keeps you really focused. It keeps you really involved. There are some things like that, which are universal ingredients. But in the book, you know, I I help people try and think about what kind of a a, a flow state am I most likely to relate to? And, you know, there's some things in there, which are like the sort of the, the meditative practice, the yoga, that sort of stuff, which work for some people. But also there's the stuff like the mountain biking, like the skiing, like the snowboarding, like the higher risk activity, which more relates to others. And then there are those people who get into their flow state socially, you know, through the engagement and interaction with others. And there are those who, you know, um, have it as, as a bit more of a sort of like solo practice, a more reflective practice. So there are different ways of getting into it. And if you identify the, the, the ways that work for you, you can manufacture more of those. You can get into flow states more regularly. And that's an important part of it too. And on that note, I think this is a really interesting one because when I've had conversations with people around this, and like I remember speaking to a mate of mine recently, and he said to me, oh, yeah, all this bloody self-care stuff. You know, like my wife, my wife's always on at me about going to get a couple's massage and having a bubble bath, and then I'm not into it. And, and, you know, it just made me think, 
that he's exactly the type of guy who, for him, self-care, you know, recovery, that's risking going over the handlebars of a mountain bike. Yeah. You know, that's doing stuff which is more high octane. Yeah. But unfortunately, often people have this idea that the way you look after yourself is limited to the ways that are often the things put out in the popular media, the yoga, the meditation. And that stuff's great. It's yeah. really good for some people. But it's okay if your version of self-care is a bit more high octane than that. Yeah. So that's one of the things we look at in that chapter, uh, that engagement. And then, as I mentioned, we've got that relationships piece as well. Uh, the, the relationships one I really like. And the reason I really like it is it's an area that I've had to really work consciously and deliberately on myself to get better Why? at. Why? Well, well, this is a fundamental idea of how this stuff relates to uh, physical fitness as well and physicality is – we don't all start in the same place. We don't all have tendencies towards ha having strengths equally across the board or at the same level. So for me, for example, you know, again, if we use the physical one, like I trained a year to run that marathon last year, a year. I had professional coaching from Dr. Will O'Connor, who's, who's a friend of my wife's and myself, you know, like, I, like, Ben, I did good coaching like I would have gotten from you, okay? Yeah, yeah. I got much fitter. I never really got faster. I ran that marathon in just under five hours. There's no way I could have done it faster. Yeah. Physiologically, I'm not built for endurance activity. I, I'm built for, you know, speed and power. Judo's my sport. I was good at rugby league, stuff like that. So my point is, is we don't all start at the same place and we don't all have the same tendencies in terms of athleticism. And that work I did last year on the marathon. Yeah, was as naturally skilled at. Oh, it had much practice in. And I think that's a key component, right? Yeah. When I was growing up, I didn't grow up in an environment where a lot of value was placed upon some of the emotional intelligence that would have you better my life in prison, away from relationships. Yeah. And so for me, this is not an area that I've really had the opportunity to get anywhere near my potential in, in the same way I might have if I was raised to be a more empathetic person or if I had spent more time earlier on in my life in relationships. Whereas I had a lot of practice at how to be mentally tough in really high stakes situations. So for me, for example, you know, judo is a classic example because it's a combat sport. And I often beat people in competition who are technically a lot better than me because I'm comfortable in a combat environment okay. because I've had experiences in my life of people actually trying to kill me, yeah. of people coming at me with weapons, I've been attacked with you know, I'm shitty, a tomahawk, all sorts of stuff. And so for me, I've developed the skill set to be good in those circumstances. But the tools that help you remain effective in those circumstances are not the same ones that have you effective when you're dealing with interpersonal stress in a relationship. Mm. And so for me, that's stuff I've had to come to later in life. And I've really focused on getting better at in terms of understanding those needs. But I guarantee you, if I ask your listeners now, how many of you, for example, when you're at work and you're trying to deal with your stress and pressure, 
go into like problem solving mode. You kind of shut the emotions down a bit and you go, okay, what exactly do I need to do now in order to get closer to getting this bit of work done to reduce the stress and pressure? And that's really effective in your workplace. How does that go when your partner starts having a conversation with you about something that they're stressed about or that they're having difficulty with and you go into that problem solving mode? How does that work for you? right? It's a different context. It requires different skills and tools. And so the relationship chapter, like I said, I'm really happy with that because it provides some insight around the social needs we all have and how we can better understand those drivers to be more effective in those circumstances. And I think there's something to add to that because it's it's, it's like I often, I find it's really interesting because, you, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of high level people in my life. And you see a lot, and these people are striving and to try to get better and stuff. And it's kind of the only area they don't work on. You know what I mean? Like the, the worst thing in their life is their home life. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, it, it is a skill. It, like your ability to be a better communicator, your ability to be, to be better at relationships is a skill that needs developing. And it's like, it's always seems to be, you know, people, they are just what they are forever. And it's like, as you say, you know, this is something you do need to work on. And there are techniques and skills to actually help you improve this so you can have deeper connections and better relationships in your life. 100%. And it's an interesting one because I often think the people who, you know, the, like the high-achieving people, people who really strive for achievement, want to get better, tend to be people who are what's called dopamine-dominant so the primary sort of like neurotransmitters that, that really influence a, a lot of our behavior and a lot of our uh, flourishing and well-being are serotonin and dopamine. And if you're dopamine dominant, dopamine is associated with motivation, the desire to move, to progress, to do things, whereas serotonin is more associated with that savoring, pleasant emotional experience. And if you're someone who's dopamine dominant, then you're likely to be driven to all of these things that you can achieve. You know, it's that sort of, what's the next goal? What's the next goal? It's that type of stuff. But the difficulty is there is those goals tend to be about things where you alone have the ability to take the actions that will advance you, that will get you there. Whereas relationships aren't like that. The only way to be effective and to progress is to work collectively together. And that's a real shift for a dopamine-dominant individual who's all about, well, what's the step I take? What do I do here to assume control, to advance the agenda, when you've actually kind of got to go, okay, different situation. This here is actually the goal, yeah. <laughs> not the resolution of this. This is, this is it. This is the work here, not the outcome that I normally focus on. And that's a real shift. Also as well, you know, it's uh, – it's an interesting idea, this one. And this comes from the work of a, a mate of mine who's bloody brilliant. This is this guy, Dr. Paul Inglet. I mentioned him in the book as well. And it's looking at, you know, the importance of what's called life complexity. And this is where a lot of us, and again, particularly people who are driven in that dopamine dominant tendency, focus singularly on success in one area. But actually, to have multiple areas that are important to you that you're investing in at the same time. Yeah. So that single track focus will often get you really far in one area, but that doesn't necessarily equate with having a satisfying, meaningful life. 
greater life complexity, greater investment in other areas is what does that. And that's why the perm is great because it identifies for people, well, what are the things that I actually do focus on and what are the gap areas for me? Uh, the Actually, part is I was, I was a really good example of that because um, when I was like at 30, I was a dopening dude basically. And, and like um, I woke up and I was very successful, but very lonely. And that's why I, I started doing some work on myself. And that's why I just read kind of Gottman's work. And, and it was, nice. you know, and when you, and you just suddenly realize, oh shit, <laughs> I have all these deficiencies, you know, and uh, you know, and then, you know, now I like to think that I'm a person who has lots of esteem points. Like, sure, I still have exercise, I have business, I have relationship, I have music, I have, you know, there's, I'm a, as you say, I'm a complex person. And, um, but I'm also more secure in myself for that reason. And it's just, it's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's kind of counterintuitive too, you know, because often we, we think if we reach this high level of success in this one area, then we'll be happier. Yeah. Then we'll feel better. And one of the things I mentioned in the book that I always just find really fascinating was the research that looked at the impact of either winning lotto or becoming a paraplegic on people's lives yeah. and happiness. And what it found is that within a year of winning lotto or within a year of becoming a paraplegic, people were actually back to their base rate level of happiness in life. Yeah. That stuff doesn't have the big impact. You know, uh, both you and I are lucky enough eh, to have people in our lives and to have had the chance to meet people who have been incredibly successful in sports. Mm. You know, um, my aunt by marriage, I might have mentioned this previously, but is, is Lorraine Moller, who won a bronze medal, you know, in the, in the marathon at, at Barcelona, that type of stuff. My father-in-law is... His age is the age-grade world champion in cross-country mountain biking. My sister-in-law went to Commonwealth Games. My wife is a beast. You know, I'm lucky. I'm surrounded by these people. But if you think that an Olympic medal or, or something like that is, is going to fill you up and is going to be an end point in your life, you're so mistaken. That's not the way it works. No. But often we have these ideas, whereas actually – if we do more work around our expectations, if we do more work around the stuff here and our relationships and our connection and the complexity of our life, that's how we increase that base rate level of flourishing, of well-being, of, of how happy we are with our lives. Again, you know, becoming a paraplegic or winning the lotto doesn't actually have that much long-term impact. And I think that's really useful to know. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? So then the next, uh, the next letter is uh, Puma M. Yeah, meaning. Yeah. I love this one, eh? Like, we all need a sense of purpose and meaning in our life. We need to feel that we're doing something that matters, something that's important. I love this idea as well because it brings to mind for me the, the Māori concept of wairua. And, and wairua is, is often translated as sort of like spirituality, but from the, the education I've had around it, it's sort of like a broader term, which is really about sense of connection with something greater than yourself. Mm. And if you break the word down, like why is water and rua is two. So it's like the two waters. And if you think of the picture of a double helix, yep. right, your genetics, those are the two waters, the two waters that flow within you based on the contributions from each of your parents, and when, you, when you're cognizant of that, it makes you think of all of this ancestral connection that sits behind you. 
this lineage which connects you with something so much. If I sit here and look at you and I think about that and I think about all of the ancestors who successfully reproduced and contributed to you being here today, I see you as something so much greater than yourself as a single individual. Mm. And, and, you know, that sense of connection, again, it's different things for different people, that sense of meaning, but it's a really important one to have in your life. For me, I'm not a religious person at all. And I think I feel my greatest sense of probably uh, connection in that wider way as well. When I'm in the redwoods in Rotorua, in that forest there, oh my gosh, I just feel plugged in as a human being. Yeah. You know, I'm aware of just this, this greater thing that's out there. And it's different things for different people. But we all need to feel that our life has purpose and meaning and that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And, and that's what that particular letter is about. The next one, A, is about accomplishment. And this is quite interesting. I've had some interesting feedback on this one from people who have read the book. Yeah. Because there's this modern concept, and it's often related to the mindfulness movement, that you shouldn't have goals and you shouldn't want to achieve things. You should just be completely peaceful and, and happy in the moment. And trust me, trust me when I tell you, I see a lot of benefit in having a mindful practice. Yeah. But I also see that as an abdication from life, that idea that you purely inhabit the moment and that you don't seek to actually actively engage with the future in a meaningful way too. Mm. And some of the feedback I've had around this from people is that, Oh, they've felt a sense of relief because they've tried all this yoga and all this mindfulness thinking they're just supposed to be completely accepting and happy with everything as it is now. And to be told that actually, no, it's healthy and it's useful to have small goals and to have larger aspirations and work towards those has, has actually been, been quite useful for them. So I'm really pleased with that. Yeah. And again, you know, like some of the stuff we talk about, and the book, I can't get out of that we habit, by the way, obviously. Eh? <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm, not, I'm aware of it. But anyway. I'll let you off, mate. I'll let you off. <laughs> At least I haven't started talking in the third person like a bastard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. like, Paul's book is about this. Paul says in his book, that's what we need to start to worry. Eh? But yeah, this whole accomplishment piece, it's like those whole ideas of just those small things that you can do on a daily basis, eh? And again, to use that example of like, you know, the running groups and that, the, the running programs you run, you know, the sense of accomplishment of actually getting there, eh? Yeah. Of actually getting there and then doing the run. For me, that's such a crucial component of the benefit I get from exercise, mm. particularly the times when I don't want to do it. Mm. But the sense of accomplishment that I get afterwards from going and doing something that's a bit hard, that's a bit challenging, that makes me better. Well, th the thing, the thing about accomplishment as well is it opens up possibility. Hundred percent, right? Yeah, it it builds what in psychology is called self-efficacy, mm. and that is the belief in your own ability to positively affect change in your life, mm. to take control of your world. You know, you're an active participant in your own life when you're getting those those accomplishments, big and small. And um, one thing that I thought would be really quite useful to touch on, if you don't mind as well, yeah. uh, for your audience, was what I, what I had in the book around how to create the circumstances and ingredients that lead to the same positive outcomes as post-traumatic growth yeah. without having to have the trauma. Yeah, yeah. So, because I think this is a good one because 
So many of the people in your world, so many of the listeners here are people who have signed up for challenges. Yeah. Hey, challenges in their own lives from a, from a running perspective or from some other perspective. So I think it'll be useful for them to understand mm-hmm. some of the other ingredients they can incorporate to supercharge the benefit they get from engaging with those challenges. So first of all, we'll just, just bring it back and we'll just go, you know, everyone listening will have heard of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. This is where you experience something traumatic in your life and you come out the other end with ongoing problems associated with the trauma. Things like hypervigilance, where you're just constantly on the lookout for threats and things going wrong. And so you get triggered really easily in terms of your unpleasant emotions, more likely to go into fight, flight and freeze when it's not warranted. You're more likely to have nightmares, to have flashbacks, to be distrustful people. There's all kinds of stuff that goes into it. What a lot of people aren't aware of is post-traumatic growth. And this is what an equal, if not greater number of people experience coming out the other end of trauma. And this is where they go, that was terrible, but I actually feel better off as a result of that. I have a clearer sense of what's important to me in my life. I'm prioritizing the things that genuinely matter to me. I'm not paying as much attention to the stuff that I focused on previously that actually just isn't that important to me. You know, I feel that my life has more meaning and purpose as a result of this trauma, even though it sucked. And here's an interesting one for you. You can have both of those. You can have PTSD symptoms and still have that post-traumatic growth benefit from it. So they're not mutually exclusive. And in fact, one of the things Seligman did with the U.S. Uh, Defense Force, with the U.S. Army in particular, to reduce the rates of PTSD at uh, people who were going for deployment was to make them aware of post-traumatic growth. So uh, they wouldn't... So going worry. into it, he made them aware of it. Yeah, 100%, okay. because then they're less likely to worry themselves into PTSD. Uh, okay. Just yeah. an awareness that there's benefit to something changes what goes on in your brain it makes it more likely you'll have the beneficial outcomes. Like I mentioned this, I want you to imagine what your experience of doing a hard run would be like if you didn't see there was any benefit to it. Mm. Can you actually imagine that that would be a traumatic experience? Mm. You'd be going, oh my God, this feels so terrible. Oh my gosh, I just wish this would stop. But when you know there's a benefit to it, it radically changes your perception and experience of it, right? Mm. And it's similar stuff here. But one of the cool things that's been discovered and that I talk about in the book is that you can get the same benefits in terms of feeling you've got a more meaningful, purposeful life. You're focusing on the stuff that truly matters. You've grown as a person without the trauma. You don't need to have a bereavement or chop an arm off or something (laughs) or go to war. Yeah. (laughs) Just putting together the right ingredients in your life. And and this is referred to as post-ecstatic growth. And again, I I thought this would be really relevant for your audience because so many of your audience are already people who are taking on challenges in their own lives. And that's the key first ingredient is you choose a challenge for yourself. Mm. And this can be different things. You know, again, the classic one is to choose a running challenge, Mm. be that the 5K, be it a marathon, a half, an ultra, whatever it is, whatever would be a challenge for you. Mm. You sign up for that. You choose to embrace that. That's the number one thing is the challenge. And again, that's where we're swapping out the trauma that is normally associated with this. You're you're choosing a challenge. And hey, look, that can even be having a kid. You know, it doesn't have to be something like running a marathon. It could be having a kid. It could be something else. 
Um, here's one of my kids. I'm actually just <laughs> filming something at the moment, my love. So I'm just going to let you let you go. I'll talk to you soon, though, my love. <laughs> that, that was like on QA. Yeah, it was on QA. You couldn't have told. You actually said, "Come in when I say." Q-A. I know, I know. I was, I was actually just waiting. I was just like, "We'll be waiting out there for the 40 minutes or whatever it is." But you know, here's another component, and it goes back to the P from the perma yeah. is to deliberately double down on doing the things that give you positive emotions, right? And doing the things that give you the sort of health outcomes you want. So instead of just doing them at a normal level, you go, right, for this challenge, I'm going to be doing even more of going for walks in nature. I'm going to be doing even more of, you know, um, visiting these people I love. I'm going to be doing even more of patting the dog. I'm going to be doing even more of making sure I'm getting enough sleep at night. It's really been more deliberate about creating that positive emotional effect than you normally would be. Um, The third piece is really cultivating curiosity, courage, and learning. And this is a really interesting one because a lot of us who do challenging things like, you know, the 5K, the 10K, the marathon, whatever it is, we accept the challenge there. We do what we can from health-wise to prepare ourselves, but we miss the opportunity to really go, let me reflect on what I've learned about myself from this. Mm. Let me be really curious about what this experience tells me about myself. You know, some of us get a bit of insight around that in passing, but very rarely are we deliberate about that in our focus. And that's what this is about. It's going, let me really try and see this as something where I want to be curious and I want to learn about this experience, about what it's like for me, about where I'm strong, about where I struggle. But also, I'm going to have the courage to really, you know, hold up the mirror to myself in that respect. And I'm going to have the courage to risk failure as part of this challenge. I'm going to have the courage to really try and stretch myself. The fourth ingredient, and this is a key one, and this is one why running is is so useful, is about going, I'm going to engage in those small daily disciplines, the small steps that purposefully advance me towards achieving this goal, advance me towards you know, being able to, to take on this challenge. And again, I love the running one because that is so what it's about, right? It's yeah. just about that investment, that day-to-day Endur- Endurance sport is such a simple, it's, it's, it's such a metaphor for growth, you know, because it is it's, it's so simple. You just follow this process and if you stick at it, you're going to see success. Yeah. And again, that's the whole premise of the book, right? Yeah. Is, is your mental life is the same. It's just less tangible just because you can't see your brain in operation. It's governed by the same laws of physics and principles as the parts of your body you can see, the parts that you're more tuned into. So 100%. Um, Another one as well, and this is one of the reasons that I love what you do, is it's around cultivating connectedness. Mm. So not doing stuff by yourself. And, you know, again, like if you're part of of a program that involves you connecting with other people who have a similar challenge, where there's that opportunity for mutual support, where there's that opportunity for feeling part of something greater than yourself again, right? That ability to feel a sense of community and identity outside of your immediate family and workplace. It's crucial for our well-being. that sense of connectedness. It really is. Another component as well that they talk about in this is being really mindful of the hero's journey for you the heroic stories in your life. And this is basically where you deliberately look back on the times in your life where you have shown up as the bigger version of yourself. 
You've been that person you'd want your reputation to reflect. You've successfully done something hard in the past and really done it effectively. And you remind yourself of those stories to give you that trust you were talking about earlier, that confidence that I got this, I can do this. You know, I've been successful in the past when things have been challenging and and reminding yourself of that is really crucial. It's incredibly helpful. And, you know, and and the last ingredient they talk about is just really focusing on and being super mindful. What are the benefits to me of doing this? Looking for the silver lining in the misery and the suffering looking for the silver lining and the challenge that you take on. And if you manage to put those ingredients together, then you will experience the same benefits as someone who has post-traumatic growth without the trauma piece. And like I said, the people who are listening, they've already got half of those, Bevan. It's just a matter of incorporating those other ones to supercharge the benefits they get from the challenges they take on. Yeah. Um, well, I, 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 I could talk to you for hours, but obviously we are limited on time. But one thing you do really well in this book is that each chapter also comes with kind of the homework. You know, like it, it, it's a book that educates, but also kind of challenges people to actually do the work so they can apply. Um, and I just think it's something that you've done really well because, you know, you can read a lot of books and then after the bit you go, well, how do I actually apply this to my life? And each, in each aspect of it, like I've got lots of, I turn pages, so lots of little pages I've turned. Um, uh, so, you know, and, and, th- and that's important, isn't it? Because we, you know, like it's one thing, so the thing for me is the ability to apply is such an important aspect of taking on any kind of learning. And, and I like what you've done in the book because you give people the tools, A, through the education and understanding, but also through how to apply this to their lives. Well, look, I appreciate hearing that because that was such a big driver for me. Yeah. Because... You know, how many books have you read in your life, mate, where you walk away going, oh, that was really interesting, yeah. that was really useful, and then that enthusiasm recedes as you just get back to your life, and you don't really get the sustained I go to a conference, isn't it? People go to a conference, and they come home, and they go, oh, I've got all these, and they don't actually apply anything. 100%, right, 100%. And, and you're a speaker yourself, you know, you know how this works, eh? Yeah, yeah totally. You know, people leave inspired and do nothing. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm really driven because my background is really in facilitation of workshops where I measure myself based on the outcomes you get outside yeah. of the workshop, right? Yeah. So what I hope people will kind of do with the book is they'll read through it and then they'll go back and they'll cherry pick the exercises and the pieces that are most relevant to them, Great. that are going to add greatest value to them. And, you know, and again, I have tried to set it up in that way. It's based on my expertise in terms of facilitating workshops around this. So it's not just the theory. It's an attempt to really upskill people with what I hope will be simple enough tools to just get them on that path. Yeah. And and the thing I always say, and I think it's really important, is that um, invest in time and working on yourself. You know, because like this book's a great book and, and it's, I guarantee anyone who reads it's going to have something that they can go, you know what, this is the thing I can work on. And if you can commit that time to investing in, you know what, I'm going to give myself an hour a week, you know, like the, the best investment you can do in your life is in yourself. And so, yeah, totally. And so, um, yeah, you know, do that investment and I guarantee that if you can apply some of the stuff in this book, you're just going to make forward progress. And that's what this is all about, isn't it? Always. It's always just that, just getting that little bit better. Yeah. You know, and I mentioned this sort of a little bit around that accomplishment chapter is that, mm. you know, a sense of progress is a fundamental driver for people. Mm. You know, we're not a species which has evolved to rest on our laurels and relax. Mm. 
That's why we live in such an amazing technologically advanced society and period in history, because we are driven to try and progress, to try and get better at things, to try and change things in a positive way, you know, regardless of some of the negative outcomes that we yeah. get from the stuff we've done, eh? Yeah. But we are driven in that sense. So a sense of progress and getting better is crucial. I remember I watched an interview, when it was Warren Buffett's first ever TV interview. I watched it on YouTube huh. a while ago. And, and I said, why are you, because he was always, he's always so positive about the, the long-term market. And he yeah. says, a hundred years ago, we we're in wagons. You know, <laughs> and now you're doing a TV interview with me and it's that human, that kind of things that we will keep progressing. We will keep, you know, as you say, it's innate in us, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah nice. hey, so, hey, Bevan, one thing I wanted to say to your listeners yeah. uh, before we wrap up yeah. is I have got a couple chapters in there where I, where, well, there's a chapter in there where I tap into some of the health stuff like the nutrition and the exercise, but that's me getting out of my lane. If you really want to know more about that stuff, Get Bevan's book on exercise, right? <laughs> Tap into the experts. So I just want to acknowledge that. There's a little bit of stuff in there where I'm going, I'm going to give you a little bit of information, but make no mistake, you know, you, you want to tap into the, the real oh, I appreciate. I appreciate the love, mate. Hey, so if people want to get the book, if they want to follow you, uh, tell us, give us the plug. Oh, so the book you can get any good or bad bookstore. Uh, also as well, probably the cheapest place to get it is on Mighty Ape online, but you can also get it for Kindle. You can also get it as an audio book by Audible if you prefer to listen to your books. And you can did find you record it yourself? Sorry? Did you record it yourself or did you just get some? I else? wish I did, but it, it's done in Melbourne and it wasn't an option based oh, on COVID okay. and lockdown and the rest of it. It required four days in Melbourne. Okay. But what they do is they get these voice actors who listen to reels of you talking oh, and then really? imitate it. And it's very close. Wow. Like a good friend of mine struggled to believe it's not me, for example. Oh, wow. That's my brain. It's very good. Yeah. But uh, on social media, you can find me easily at just, you know, at Dr. Paul Wood, at Dr. Paul Wood, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, all that sort of stuff. I'll, put, I'll put links in the show notes to all that, guys. So if you want to get the book, the book again, it's Mental Fitness, Build Your Mind for Strength and Resilience Every Day. Um, Paul, you, you mate, I could talk to you for hours. And you, and you, you know, the great thing about you is, and I always love it, I always think one of the most attractive things in life, I've talked about this on my show recently, one of the most attractive pieces of things in life is a passionate person who knows their stuff. You know, you know, like we, and because I was, my, my band, we're recording our album and I, I've talked about this on the show, but we're recording our album at the moment and we've got this guy and he's actually quite an unassuming character, but he's a sound engineer. And mm. once you start talking about, and, and I know nothing about sound engineering, like I play the keyboards and all the rest of it, but, and he starts talking and he's talking about shit I don't even know, you know, but I can listen to him all day because he knows his shit and he's passionate. And it's just such an attractive trait to have. And, and it's, it oozes out of you because A, you know your stuff, you're very passionate and you, 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 your ability to express and educate is it's a really powerful tool. So awesome. thanks for coming on the show. And it's um, been, I'm sure everyone's loved having, listening to you. Nah, such a, such a privilege and a pleasure. John hasn't listened to that, but as you can see, he's one of these people when you push you push record and he talks because he knows his crap, but not in a bad way. Mm-hmm. And as you can see from his interview, he just knows his stuff. So it really enjoyed the interview with Paul. The book is called Mental Fitness and Build Your Mind for Strength and Resilience Every Day. Uh, there's links to it in uh, the show notes, but those are mainly for New Zealand people. Uh, it will be on Amazon, so you can just check it out on Amazon as well. That's again, Dr. Paul Wood. Jombo, what you got? Uh, Christmas Day, four days away. Wait a second. Oh, no, I can't say Christmas presents yet, can you? Mm, yeah, we haven't got a lot of excitement this year around Christmas presents. Because um, Tommy got his bike, didn't he? Tom's got his bike. 
I don't even know what Felicity's getting. Wow, Belinda's what a in, loving parent. Belinda's in charge. Well, I know I'm not getting anything. Belinda's not getting much either. So now, now here's the thing. My rule is Christmas Day, you eat as much as you can. Oh, absolutely. You know, like I, I go sick. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's afternoon nap time. Yeah, I go ridiculous. It's so the one day my I probably do it two days a year. Birthday, Christmas Day, because mm. I'm, I'm a good eater. I know, but Christmas Day, I'm all out. Mm. Holiday. I drink as much Coke as I want. Mm-hmm. So once, I, so Wednesday, tomorrow I go on holiday. Yeah. Because normally I have Coke Day Friday and yeah. Saturday I have Coke as well and then no have time in the week. From tomorrow yeah. through to the 10th. All I throw every day. A shitload of Coke. It's like Kona. You get your bloody <laughs> yeah, couple, of, couple of dozen. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> That's it. Coke Zero? It's not sure. What was that? Oh, it's Bevan having another Coke. Yep, yep. I, I smash it out. Uh, a little bit overindulgent in eating but not too crazy. Mm-hmm. Other than Christmas Day. What's your strategy? Uh, so we go late, sort of hold off for breakfast and go croissants for breakfast generally. Christmas Day. Yeah, and then we have a, a sort of a, go for like a two or three o'clock sort of main main meal. Oh, two, do you? Two, yeah. Uh, so have Just a late main meal. Yeah, and then sometimes have a little bit in the evening, but maybe have, extend dessert out and maybe have dessert like at dinner time. So like have have the main and then maybe have dessert. And do you guys five. over over cater? So you literally have food for the next five days? No, not really. Oh. We're pretty big eaters, so no, not and we haven't got a massive oven up there, so no, not too much. We have turkey, stuffing balls. I do stuffing balls; they're always oh, popular. I love a stuffing, and you've got to have good roast potatoes. See, we have. I always have a treat breakfast, not a big breakfast, but a treat mm. breakfast. I might love just some nice bacon and something like that. Mm. But we always have so two families. So we have. I think we're doing lunch with my family, dinner with Joe's family. Mm-hmm. So I go OTT on lunch. <laughs> I might go Eggs Benedict this year. I might go a bit crazy with the... Yeah, uh, do it, John. Do it. I have to think about it. I'm getting that. hungry thinking about it because I haven't eaten since like five hours ago. And then and then go have a bit of a nap, mm-hmm. mentally prepare myself, massive dinner as well, yeah. and double, triple desserts. Yeah. Oh. And all you guys in the Northern Hemisphere, we normally go to the beach. So you can burn off, you can have have a bit, you burn it off. And outdoor games. We do outdoor mm-hmm. games as well. So yeah, that's it. One thing I do want to share... Is because my daughter's bought a first home. She nice. moves. She moves into a house yesterday. Nice work. Yeah, it's a pretty exciting moment in my daughter's life. Mm. Twenty-four. She saved her own deposit. I'm really proud of her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's and she's got a flatmate. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I got to say it's much easier in Cairns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in New Zealand. Well, so the average house price in New, New Zealand. Zealand is now a million dollars. Yeah, that crazy. is ridiculous. Yeah, and so Tyler bought a place in Cairns. I've been telling everyone this because it blows my mind. She's bought a. Three bedroom, two bathroom, really nice apartment, mm. pool, you know, centre of town, great location. What what would you pay for that here? Probably eight hundred. Ah, uh, easily depends on location. But yeah, but no, no, let's call it a million. Average average price there. Okay, well, I think it's probably more eight hundred. Guess what she paid? Four hundred twenty-five thousand. Three hundred thousand. Crazy, ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. Her mortgage, basically with a flatmate, is only going to cost her like 250 bucks a week. Like, that, for cost of everything. Yeah. So the cost of your, your rates, she has got body corp, you know, everything, with a flatmate costs 250 bucks a week. Mm. Nice. You think, you know, kids in New Zealand has got it so hard. Mm. You think like Tommy and that, you know, mm. five, seven years from now, for them to, to save a deposit mm. is going to be 250,000 bucks. Crazy. It's just unfair. Anyway, that's um, my Christmas spirit. <laughs> yeah. We, we, gave, we gave my daughter, we gave her money yeah. to buy furniture. So nice. there you go. That's what we did. Anyway, John, let's wrap it up. Uh, uh, we've got patrons. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, I need to do the, the outro. Sorry. Uh, if you, uh, patrons, John. 
Rob, the detailed deliverer Gray. Daniel, the investigator Clark. And Parker, Barney Day. Okay, again, if you want to be a patron, go www.ihamtalk.me. Support the show. You could be a Christmas present for the boys. If we if we contribute to your triathlon world, yeah. we make your triathlon a little bit better, chuck a few dollars our way. It helps us do what we do. I won't do the other stuff because we're pretty much at Christmas time. Anyway, John, let's wrap it up. I'm Russ. I'm Window. Train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha. Kia kaha.